0: Hi everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle. I'm a member here at Doxology, and I'm going to be doing the scripture reading for tonight. Uh, tonight we are going to be reading out of uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. Um, so I would invite you to turn to your Bible uh, to that uh, book and verse. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back of the pews that look like this, light blue ones. Um, they're also up front. You're welcome to take that as our gift to you. Uh, if you are using that Bible, um, we are going to be on page 581. Uh, otherwise you can turn, uh, to, um, Hebrews chapter two verses five through 18 on your phone or any other electronic device you may have. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor And again, behold, I and the children of God, children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the, God, of the Lord.
1: Kyle, well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you again. For those of you who are new, a warm welcome to you. My name is Steve. Really glad you're here. So we recently started a series in Hebrews, and the theme of Hebrews is... Uh, persevere together uh, by drawing near to Christ, your present help. And I was talking with Kelsey about this the other week, you know, like, what is Hebrews about? And she said, why don't you just say, persevere, draw near, do it together. And I said because that would be easier for a church to remember. So, so we'll just go with yeah. Persevere, draw near, do it together. If you remember anything from Hebrews five years from now, uh, just re- remember this. And this is so helpful. So on the one hand, persevere. Uh, God speaking through the author of Hebrews cares about us to know cares enough about us to tell us over and over again in Hebrews that. Um, One of the main reasons why we're so often frustrated with God or with ourselves or with other people is because we've developed this expectation that heaven should be on earth now. Um, But what Hebrews reminds us of is, no, we're not going to have heaven on earth until Christ returns to bring us a new heaven and new earth. And so in the meantime, life is a race. So we have to persevere. And there are going to be many trials of heart and mind that are going to tempt us to Uh, turn away from Jesus Christ and so persevere. But it's not just persevere, it's persevere by drawing near to Christ, your present help. Christ didn't just come for you in history, but he lives today as your present help in time of need, which is what we're going to see throughout uh, all of Hebrews. And uh, in chapter one, we saw how Jesus is such a treasure to us because he helps us as one who's fully God. And the author makes a turn today in chapter two, and he tells us the reason why Christ is such a great help for you isn't just because he's fully God, but because he's fully human. And you may hear that and say, okay, Christ is fully human. I get it. You know, but I don't think this wows us as much as it should. You know, it certainly hasn't for me. And as I was going through the text this week, it was really amazing me. And so we're going to see why it's such a, a treasure that Christ is fully Human and so we 're going to look at it under these three lines um, first we 're going to see in his humanity he 's a king who frees us uh, number two he 's a friend who understands us, and number three he 's a brother who likes us he 's a king who frees us he 's the friend who understands us and number three he 's the brother who likes us. Um, so first, number one, he's the king who frees us. And uh, just giving some credit where credit is due, there's a pastor named James Forsyth who pastored in this area for over 10 years. Heard a sermon on this from him a while back that inspired some of this. I just want to uh, give credit to him as it was helpful for me. So uh, let's go ahead and start in the beginning, verse 5. Uh, and so what the author's doing here is he's he's giving us context to help us see why it's so important that Uh, Christ is fully human. So, and what he wants to tell us is that essentially we are living in the middle of a storyline. History is not a tale told by an idiot filled with sound and fury signifying nothing, as Macbeth said. But there is a storyline, there's a poetic storyline, in fact, to history with Christ as its climax and hero. And so we need to remember that's what we're in. And so this is what he does in verses uh, 5 to 8. Let me just summarize. So let's look at uh, verse 7. You made him for a little while lower than angels. Him, he's speaking of men and women, human beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And so here he's quoting from Psalm 8, and what he's getting at is that God made you and me as human beings unique among all the other living things in creation to steward his creation in such a way that we bring order out of chaos. So we create things like agriculture for food and systems of government for order. But not only that, he created us to steward his creation, not just for order, but for our joy and for God's glory so that we can enjoy the material world in such a way that we can have fun with things like going on a walk on a fall evening after dinner. Or creating music or art that stirs the soul to behold, or just something as simple and delightful as laughing with friends in a living room. Uh, these things God wants us to enjoy as his image bearers. But then what do we see in the end of verse 8? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Okay, so God created us to steward creation, but At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him, speaking of men and women, and here this is the author's simple realism that as we look around, it doesn't look like we have control over creation, but creation has control over us, and this is due to sin for us reversing the relationship between us and God, for us putting ourselves in the place that only God should be. Sin has now fractured the world, and so now now as we look out into the world, what do we see? There's a lot of people who don't get the enjoyment of laughing with friends in a living room. I mean, as we speak right now, there are tens of millions of human beings who are being trafficked, one of four of whom are children. There are roughly 70 million refugees currently having had to flee their homes due to terror or war. And on a personal level, you know, as we think about you know, existentially within, we, you know, we have the heartbreak of relationships not going as we wish they would. You know, we have the, the anxiety and depression that we face. We have our own personal demons where we hide things about ourselves from other people because we wonder, if someone were to really see me, would I be truly lovable? Okay, creation rules over us in so many ways. And so what's the solution? Verse nine, but we see him, amen, but we see him. And so this is the pivot point of the entire section here in Hebrews. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, speaking of his incarnation, where he became human. And then verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom by whom all things exist, would bring many sons to glory through Christ. And what he's getting at is, it was always meant to be a human being, who would steward creation in a way that would bring flourishing and wholeness to all. We've screwed that up. And so what God does is instead of just snapping his fingers from on high and getting rid of sin and pain, is he resolves the story in a poetic way, in an artistic way. You know, he sends Jesus as a human being to to do what we could not do. And so here in verse 9, as we see, but we see him, the good news of the gospel is, you know, when you're looking at the chaos without or you're feeling the pangs within, the answer God gives you is never stop being a crybaby. The answer is always, no, things are bad, but Jesus is far better. But we see him. Look to him. And so for the rest of the passage, we're going to see why Jesus becoming human and becoming, therefore, the king who frees us, the friend who understands us, and the brother who likes us is, is such good news and so I hope for you, all, I was just so taken away this week um, in wonder, and I felt like it was a little bit like, if you guys have read the Chronicles of Narnia, where uh, Lucy, she's the youngest sister of the four, and she looks at Aslan, she's older in her life, and she looks at Aslan, and she says something to the effect, of, she goes, oh, Aslan, you've gotten, you've gotten bigger. And he goes, no, dear child, you've simply gotten older. And she goes, but you have not. And he goes, no, I have not. But the older you get, the bigger I'll become. And you see what he's saying, this is C.S. Lewis's way of describing, like, the more we see of Christ, the bigger he becomes, and the more just captivated we are by him. So I hope the Lord does for you all, and, and for me, as I'm up here, as we see that the majesty of Christ, because it's amazing. So let's, let's keep going. How is he the king who frees us? We see this in a couple places. Uh, the main part is in verse 14. Since therefore the children, that's us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things. So Jesus, while keeping his full deity, became fully and really human, with a heart and skin and lungs. Why? Because if Jesus did not take on flesh and blood, Jesus couldn't be our Savior. Because if He did not take on flesh and blood, then He could not die. See, don't you see? Jesus, the one enthroned on high, He had to take on a heart that we could wound, He had to take on skin that we could tear, He had to take on lungs that would gasp for air. And why did he do it? End of verse 9, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This is what makes Jesus's death unique in human history, in that it was a fully substitutionary death. By becoming fully human, this qualified Jesus to be your substitute, to pay the penalty for sin, which is death. So if you owe the bank $10,000 and you try to give them a few baskets of oranges, that's not going to go well. Why? Because you need to pay in the same currency. So because the payment for for our sin is death, Jesus in his humanity paid that to die in our place. Okay, but he didn't just do it to be our substitute. What also does he say? End End of verse 14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So it's not just that he died in a substitutionary way, amen, but there was a poetry to his death. You see, through death, he destroyed death. So he took our most unassailable foe and used its own weapon against it to free us from death. This is like when, apparently this is Narnia day, so this is like in, in Narnia when, when Aslan resurrects from the dead. And uh, he says, somebody to the effect of when a willing victim... Uh, in, instead of a tra- when a willing victim dies a traitor's death so that the traitor can live, that's when the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. So because Jesus was fully innocent, the only innocent human who's ever lived, and willingly went to the cross from you, went to the cross for you, what that means is death no longer has any rule over you. You see, to deliver, verse 15, to deliver... All those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery, and you know, for our congregation, most of us are in our 20s and 30s. Um, and when you're in your 20s and 30s, and even in your 40s, it's hard to appreciate this. Um, but one person who flushed this out really well, like the fact that we're freed from the slavery of death, is uh, Ernest Becker in his Pulitzer book in the 70s. Wrote a book called The Denial of Death, and what he gets at in that book is basically talking about how, and he wasn't a Christian. But in our secular culture, you know, where we say there is no afterlife, when you die, you rot. When we know that we're mortal, you know, we don't like that. And so we put the reality of our death away in a drawer, but it still pops up in our life in a variety of ways. So we attach permanence to things that aren't permanent. So, for example, he says, you know, there's one reason why people become so aggressive with their politics. Because deep down, you know you're mortal. And so if you can attach yourself to something that seems like that has more meaning or seemingly more permanence, then I mean now that's a matter of life and death for you. And so now you can't budge. But you know f- for you and me just think about all the various ways not just in the macro but in the micro the fear of death plays a role in your life. I mean think about all the small deaths we fear all the time. So you you may fear the death of a relationship. And so you don't confront a person that you really should confront them about something on. Or you may fear, you know, the, um, the instability of not having enough finances. So you keep all your money to yourself. You know, uh, parents, I think we need to be really careful here because as parents, I mean, keeping our children alive is one of the main things we should do. But one of the main reasons why parents often become over-controlling with their children is what? Because we're so afraid of their death, That we don't actually let them be free to grow and make their own decisions what hebrews reminds us of is there's only one person who has the power over death and can protect our children and that's jesus okay so in the micro we're no longer enslaved to death but in the macro we're liberated from death as well and you know for a lot of you you may not really treasure this right now i certainly don't but You know, not to, I mean, death is by definition a morbid topic, but not to be morbid, there will come a day, there will come a day, unless Christ returns first, where you stand at the doorway of death. And if you are in union with Christ, what this means is this threshold is not the threshold into pain and loss and hell, but instead because of Christ tasting death for you, Instead, it's the threshold to white shores and green hills and a amazing welcome party where you are in intense communion with your brothers and sisters in the church and most of all, in deep communion with the very one you've waited for so long to see. I mean, when each of us get there, that's a gift more precious than gold. So, Jesus, he's the king who frees us from the slavery of death because he's fully human. Number two, he's not just the king on high who saves us from death, but what? He's the friend who understands us. And what I love about these next two points, friend and brother, is there's a majesty to Christ, you know, being the king who frees us from death. But there's another kind of majesty when the same king on high stoops on one knee and comes alongside us as our friend and brother. And that's what we see in these next two points. So, uh, our friend who understands this, we see this mainly in verses 16 through 18. For surely it's not angels that he helps. Finishing up that line of thought on angels that he began in chapter one. For it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's anyone who's trusting in Christ. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So there's this, is the reality that by becoming human, he is now a more perfect and merciful and faithful help for us than he could have been had he not become human. And as a note here, in case I forget, there's this, as you were hearing the scripture editor, if you read it earlier today, in verse 10, it says, uh, Jesus Christ, um, or it says, yeah, bring many sons to glory should be, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You're probably like, huh? You know, isn't Jesus perfect already? Uh, we're not gonna go over that today. The author's gonna bring it up again in chapter five, so teaser to come to church in November. And you'll find out, like, what does he mean by Jesus became perfect? Cause, it, but it's, it's really key. But anyway, okay, back to, back on the main thoroughfare. Okay, so verse 17. He, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. So there's not only poetry here of Jesus defeating death through death, but he's also able to help us in our suffering. Because he suffered. And this comes out in at least two ways. First, this means Jesus is the only one who really understands you. You know, there's few things more frustrating or a few more feelings of helplessness that come along when you feel like no one can really understand you. Either, you know, who you are or you're going through something. And even those closest to you just don't really get what you're going through. But because Jesus was fully human and suffering marked his entire life, what this means is any experience you're going through, he can fully sympathize with. So, have you ever been betrayed by somebody close to you who should never have betrayed you? He knows. Have you ever been abandoned or felt alone? He knows. Have you ever been lied about? Do you ever feel anxious? He knows. Have you ever lost a parent? He knows. From what we can tell, he lost his father when he was a teenager. Have you ever prayed something for so long you wish God would answer yes? And I say this with all sensitivity, but it was either answered no or not yet. He knows. Father, if if it's at all possible, will you take this cup from me? And so when the bad news comes, or when you can't sleep at night, or when just another disappointment comes and you don't know if you can take another one, you go to your high priest and all you need to say is, Christ, you know. You know. I just I just had to do this the other week, and it, it was such a help. So he's the friend who really understands you. And in addition to that, he can understand not just your pains, but he understands your temptation. You see verse 18? For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And this is curious, because for the longest time I thought, well, you know, Jesus, he he took on, you know, full humanity, but he never sinned. So how could he actually know what my experience is like, right? Because my experience, and I'm sure your experience as well, is often being tempted and then often falling, often succumbing. And so if Jesus never sinned, how could he really sympathize with me? When I come to him again and again and again, I'm like, how can you still love me after I've done this for the 10th time? What Hebrews is challenging us with and pressing on us is because the perfect Christ took on full humanity, rather than distancing himself from your experience of temptation, this guarantees that nobody knows temptation more than Christ. How? Well, think about it. When you and I are tempted, we give in. And when you give in to temptation, there is a release of tension, right? There's a release valve that takes place because now you're no longer having to fight it. But Jesus never gave in at all. Like when Satan sends his, you know, minions after you and me, they just have to bring the little BB guns. How badly do you think Satan wanted Jesus to (laughs) sin? Because one thought, one action of greed, lust, pride, distrust of his father, one time, and you and I would be doomed. Imagine the full arsenal of weaponry that Satan took out to go after Jesus. And he didn't cave in, not even once. So contrary to not knowing what it's like to be tempted, he felt the full weight of it. Why? To bring you to glory to be one who can truly sympathize with you. And what's amazing about him never having succumbed to temptation is so w- when you go through something hard, it is incredible to have someone who's also going through something hard, you know, and maybe they're in the cave with you. That's powerful. But you know what's even more powerful? Someone who's been through hell and been through brutality, but overcome it and come out on the other side and now can come along you, alongside you and say, Here's where light is, here's where hope is, and here's how you get there. And because Jesus Christ overcame, that's who he is for you. And so we have in Jesus Christ, because he, the son of God, not only died in your place, but suffered alongside you, now as he's enthroned on heaven, you don't just have someone who has the power of God to help you. You have someone with all the sympathy of a friend and all the compassion of a brother. That's our Christ, okay? He's not He's not just the king who frees you, but he's the friend who understands you. Finally, number three, he's the brother, brother who likes you. Verse ten. For it was fitting that he, speaking of God, for it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist and bring many sons to glory, should make the founder of their founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies—that's Jesus—and those who are sanctified, those of us who are becoming more the people God intended us to be, all have one source. We all come from the same stock. That is why he, Jesus, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then he quotes a uh, three Old Testament passage like driving this, this reality home, that Jesus is our brother, and he's not ashamed of us. And then you'll see later in verse 17, right, therefore we had to be made like his brothers. Okay, so there's this theme that Jesus just isn't our king, our friend, but he's also a brother. So uh, growing up, I had, I still have two older brothers, and you can bring up So, yeah, let's get our laughs out there. Steve is a 17-year-old. He's super cool wearing a beaded necklace. I mean, what was high school in the early 2000s unless you were wearing... All right, whatever. So... That's me, and that's my two brothers. And they're four years and six years older than me. And when you're in your thirties and forties, that's not that big of a gap. But when you're younger, when you're in elementary school, that's a big gap. And so, when I was in sixth grade, uh, one of my brothers was halfway through high school, and the other brother had already entered college. And so, even though I was the little kid, and I was certainly an annoying kid, uh, they took me under their wing. And they did all kinds of things with me. You know, so they would, They would take me to movies. They would drive me to friends' houses. They would take me to sports practices. They would show me secrets in video games and take me to secret places in the neighborhood. I remember my oldest brother, he found this life-size X-Wing fighter, like, in the woods, just because in his free time he would go, like, make huts in the woods and live there. He was weird. Um, But he found an X-Wing. And so, you know, when I was, like, 10 years old or something, he put me on his back. So I felt like Yoda, minus the wisdom, you know, on the back of Luke, and he, like, ran me through the woods into this secret place to show me this giant X-wing and just, you know, meant the world. Uh, Another brother, he would take about an hour out of his afternoon every day after school to train me in lacrosse to help me make a selective team. Uh, One of my brothers, when I was 22, uh, there was a girl I really liked in college and I had to have a precarious conversation with her. And so he sat with me and he helped me work through like how to broach these difficult topics and most of all, how to honor her regardless of how things worked out. And that girl is now my wife, and so I owe him big time. Because these brothers, they did all kinds of things for me. They protected me. I mean, they kept me from getting beat up. Like one time in high school, I didn't get beat up because of them. But what undergirds all of this, what made that experience so powerful growing up with them, is they weren't ashamed of me. You know, like there's a big difference between having a brother who They just kinda have you around because they're stuck with you. You you know, they're unfortunate enough to share the same bloodline as you. But they weren't ashamed of me. They liked me. They'd introduce me to their friends. And because I had these brothers who weren't ashamed of me, I felt like I could take on the world. You know, it didn't matter if I get made fun of at school. It didn't matter if I didn't score as many goals as I wanted on, on the sports field. Because I had brothers who liked me, I could do anything. And so for you, do you have someone like this in your life? A brother, a father, a mother, a sister, an older mentor. And what the amazing news of the gospel is, the best older brother in the world can't compare to Jesus. Like, did you know that in Jesus you have you, ha- you have someone who loves you like a brother it's not just that he loves you so i think for a lot of us you know when we especially for those of us who have been walking with jesus for a long time like we get that jesus loves us it's one of the first things we hear it's just kind of part of the gig but he loves us with an ongoing sense of disappointment you know he loves us because he kind of has to because that's his role as the second person of the trinity But no, in Jesus, you have a brother who's not ashamed of you. You have a brother who likes you. You have a brother who, the one enthroned on on high, looks at all of those around him and says, I am so glad to be her brother. I am so glad to be his brother. And Maybe that's just something you need to hear tonight. And because Jesus is God and is one with God, this means God likes you too. And couldn't be more proud of you. So in this life that's often so hard, persevere, yes, but you persevere as you draw near to Christ, your present help, who's your king who frees you, your friend who really understands you, and in some ways, best of all, he's the brother who likes you, and he gives you everything you need. In this life and the next. Let's pray. Father, your gospel is so big. It's so big. And I thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. It is in His name we pray. Amen.